trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. We gather here as wrong thinkers from all walks of life. But the point is, we gather here so we can think and speak freely. And I'm happy to welcome my wrong thinker friend, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, great to catch up with you. How's life? Oh, it's very good. And once again, we are still not of the body. Do you remember that reference? Uh, you're going to have to refresh my memory. Classic Star Trek. There's an episode <laughs> where Kirk and the uh, the away team go down to this planet where uh, the people are sort of transfixed by robotic programming, and they walk around with a vacuous smile on their faces, and they, they approach the landing party and ask, if, are you of the body? Meaning part of the cult. And it's kind of just a funny little way to uh, mock what's going on around us right now. I okay. am not of the body. I don't wear <laughs> I don't wear the face burka, and I don't get the jab. You know, and you have an article that I noticed just came up uh, earlier today: face burka signage and property yep. rights. And I thought, okay, this is a yep. discussion I want to have because we're seeing the the mask mandates lifted in a lot of areas. I mean, yeah, uh, people can breathe. Yes, and that's a wonderful thing. And um, at the same time, there have been a lot of people on our side of the aisle. Uh, conservative people and libertarian people who've been ambivalent about ignoring the signs demanding that you put on the face burqa in order to go into a store or a restaurant, for example, and they'll say, well, it's a question of property rights. We don't, you know, I don't like wearing the, the face burqa, but it is, after all, not my store. It's, a, it's the store owner's prerogative to, uh, to set terms and conditions. Now, normally that would be true in the case of something like uh, no shirt, no shoes, no service. But the, the reason why it's fallacious in this case, I think, is because it really isn't the store owner's free choice. It is something that's being imposed by the government and then the government, which applies the social pressure uh, to the people by creating this mass hysteria, uh, which then results in people calling up the local health department if the store hasn't got the sign out or isn't enforcing the diapering. So it really isn't a legitimate property rights issue because the property is being suborned by the force of the government, in my opinion. Yeah, there's a word you use in that article, duress. And that yes. that is the key that changes everything. If, if it was strictly a voluntary thing, it would be one thing, but there is duress being applied. Sure, exactly. Another good way to look at it is this business, and this is a totally unrelated thing you, in some ways, but in other ways it's, a, I think, a related thing. Um, Social Security, you know, they, they refer to it as a contribution, but it's not a contribution. It's, it's something that you're forced under duress. Uh, your, your money is taken from you by the government. So it's not really a, a property rights issue. Rather, it's a violation of property rights. And more broadly, getting back to the whole thing of the signage, we don't really know what these business owners want because they are under duress. You know, if we didn't have all of the mandates, guidelines, all of the other stuff, all of the force that's been applied to these store owners, and if we could honestly say, well, this guy over here who's running his store for reasons of his own has decided to require that you put on a mask in order to get in his store, yeah, sure, he's got the right to do that, I suppose. But we don't know that. We can just assume that people are under duress. So I think that's one very powerful argument contra this whole uh, this whole property rights thing. And then there's a more fundamental thing, in my opinion, which is that this isn't just an ordinary matter of etiquette, like wearing shoes and shirts, 
for example, to go into a store. This is about the propagation of an evil thing, of a lie, of attempting to uh, coerce people to, to show, literally, to manifest, to show that they agree with something that they don't agree with and thereby create the impression that this lie is legitimate. And that, I think, is a, a moral question, and it's a very immoral thing to force people to show that they agree with something that they don't agree with. Oh, I, I'm with you on that. And, and isn't it interesting, um, you know, the president has been very, uh, you know, prominently seen, you know, on Zoom calls with other nations' leaders, and he's the only guy wearing, you know, yep. the, the mask. And yet, uh, I just saw the picture posted earlier this morning on Twitter of uh, the president and Dr. Jill Biden uh, with yep. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, you know, who mm-hmm. are, are very aged, very much at yes. risk for COVID. But look, hey, the Bidens are right there. No masks required. And I realize just another example of it's it's theater. That's all it is. Yeah, well, it's also it's also very disingenuous. It's it's another attempt at fear mongering by uh, by the president and by other people like Fauci who were doing this. We know or at least we know because they, they claim that they've received the holy jab. So they ought not to have uh, any worry about the virus any longer, correct? That's what we're being told. The whole thing is, oh, you know, if you get the jab, uh, you don't have to worry. You're fine. Well, why is he continuing to wear the thing? And he's doing it for the purpose of fomenting more fear, or rather maintaining the fear, creating the impression that things are dangerous out there. And that's a despicable thing. As the president, whether he's a conservative or a liberal, Uh, If he's not a bad man, he should be out to placate people. I mean, not to placate, but to ameliorate people's fears, to give them an honest context, not to essentially be screeching fire in a theater when there is no fire. Right. Well, it's it's interesting, too, to see, in addition to, you know, the co-opting of of businesses to become government enforcers or enforcers of government policies. Now I'm looking at all the perverse incentives to get vaccinated. And there's yeah. a, there's an actual list of companies. Hey, we'll give you free stuff if you just show us proof of your vaccination. Sure. Yeah, they're trying to coerce people into doing that. And by the way, there's an interesting thing to get back to the, this whole thing of the uh, the vaccine. Uh, they are saying that even if you get vaccinated, you can potentially you can potentially still catch the Rona, right? So, well, if that's the case, I, if I don't take the vaccine, I guess I could still potentially catch the Rona. But if I take the vaccine, not only can I still catch the Rona, but now I've got the risk of whatever that vaccine has to me. So no thanks. I think I'll just go ahead and take the one risk of potentially catching the Rona. Yep. I'm I'm still, uh, I'm going to proudly maintain my membership in the control group who is un- <laughs> unvaccinated, at least for the time yeah. being. I, but, you know, my, my wife desperately wants to see our daughter in Germany. Yeah. And so she has taken the vaccine. On the premise that no no airline is going to let me fly unless I right. can show them that that I'm vaccinated, I just right. feel very backed in a corner by by the the whole approach here. Well, I do too. I think everybody does. We all have a story, don't we? Um, my story is that my mom has been imprisoned in one of these elderly care facilities now for more than a year. She has dementia, and uh, per the government's uh, the local government, the state government's decree. Uh, nobody is permitted to visit her, so uh, my sister and I cannot see her. And even if they lift that decree, uh, they're certainly going to demand that we put on the face burka, and they may even demand the holy jab, which I simply will not do because I will not, as unpleasant and sad as it is, allow my family ties to be to be used as leverage against me to be complicit in any of this. And that's that's my decision. Everybody's got to make their own decision. 
Yeah. Well, in the end, though, it's your conscience you have to be able to live with. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want my elderly mother who has dementia to uh, see a strange man wearing a weird thing over his face showing up. She barely knows who I am anymore. And I don't want to, to cause her that stress. And I don't want to cause myself the stress of seeing my mother wearing that thing because I know my own mother and my mother would have the same views on this as I do. And uh, if she's compelled to wear one, it's under duress. And I just don't want that to be the last image I have of my mom in my mind after she passes. No, perfectly understandable. Now, actually, we are seeing some pretty good news, though, in the sense that even places that traditionally were very uh, rigid and inflexible when it came to their mask policy, it seems like they're starting to back off now and, and finally lighten up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Oh, and there's also some wholesale good changes. Uh, as you and I were discussing a little bit off the, uh, off the air, uh, DeSantis, Governor DeSantis down in Florida, has lifted every sickness kabuki, and in addition to that, he has also told these counties and, and, and towns and cities that have imposed their own local ordinances that they are unenforceable and they cannot continue to enforce them. So that's extremely good news, particularly because it will provide irrefutable proof that all of this is just theater, just as we have the case of Texas, we have the case of Florida previously, having uh, far less of a problem than states that have been completely totalitarian like Michigan and California. So the more that sanity spreads, the more it spreads, and hopefully we'll recover the sanity of the country. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at my calendar and thinking uh, it's been about two months now since Texas and Florida list, lifted yep. all of their restrictions. Isn't this, the, uh, isn't this the time when we should start really seeing everybody dropping dead? You know, the naysayers, of course. Are, just give it a couple of months, you'll see. Mm -hmm. Well... Here yeah, we are. And then they're silent, aren't they? <laughs> you know, nothing ever happens, ever. I emphasize that, ever. You know, you and I talked previously, I think, about this. Uh, these, these super spreader events, as they're styled by CNN and the Fear Organ Media, uh, from the, the Sturgis rally, the motorcycle rally last year, to all the Trump rallies, to all of the other mass gatherings of people, which in every case were, 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 became the pretext for screaming ululations about how there's going to be mass death and this is so irresponsible and oh my God, oh my God, and then nothing happens. And of course the story just goes away and you never hear about that incident anymore. So, you know, there's a pattern here. They're, they're consistently ignoring all of the evidence that runs contrary to their fear organing and they're, they're propagating uh, as many lies as they can, hoping that people will continue to buy into it. Okay, we got to take a quick break. Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And uh, Eric, you know, we talk about uh, freedom-related things, and I'm grateful for that. You are a terrific resource. You're also kind of my go-to guy when it comes to uh, all things automotive. If there's something, well, if I have you. a question, I say, what would Eric say? What would Eric do? Um, let's talk about electric vehicles. I got a friend mm -hmm. who just, yeah, got let's a, talk. just got him a Tesla yeah, Model we, we, 3. And, and he's, he's, well, he's very enamored with it, but I understand that's not the case for a lot of people. Yeah, we hear a great deal about the inevitability of electric cars, that they're the future and that's what we'll all be driving by 2030. Well, there was an interesting article the other day in Business Insider that tracked some stats about electric vehicle ownership. And it turns out that in California, which is the major market for electric vehicles, 
uh, one in five people who have bought an electric car have returned it, have traded it in uh, for a not electric car because they just couldn't deal with the hassles, with worrying about the range all the time, and more, actually more significantly, worrying about the weight for the recharge time. It just got to be too much of a burden for them, and they return to dreaded internal combustion because of the convenience that it affords people. And that, that has some interesting ramifications for this idea that uh, the country writ large, instead of 1% in California, are going to be driving electric cars by 2030. Boy, it sure seems like, uh, you know, I, I don't keep as close an eye on the automotive industry as you do, but it sure seems like there there's a wholesale rush towards electric vehicles on the part of auto manufacturers. And I I don't get it unless unless this is them just being, you know, mandated into, you know, emissions and, and other considerations coming from the regulatory agencies. Well, that, that's just it. They're not responding to a market because there really is no market for electric cars, no natural market. What they're responding to is their belief that there will be a mandated market, that they will uh, be in a position to offer nothing but electric cars because of the government mandates, and that people will be forced de facto uh, to buy or drive an electric car because there won't be any alternative to them. Of course, there are a number of problems with that, including the affordability issue, which you and I have talked about before. Electric cars are extremely expensive relative to non-electric cars. The least expensive of them are in the thirty-five dollars to $40,000 range. And that's for a car like a Nissan Leaf with the base battery that only goes about 150 miles before you have to stop and wait for the thing to recharge. It's simply not a practical vehicle in addition to not being an affordable vehicle. And I think just like with the Wooflu stuff, the general public has been fed a bill of goods about electric cars. Ooh, ludicrous speed. Look how quick they are, which is true. But they're not telling people the other side of the coin about the problems with the range, the problem with the weight. And all of what that implies for people's everyday lives. We're used to just being able to, at the spur of the moment, without even thinking about it, hey, let's go for a ride. Oh, I've got to go to the store. Something came up. I'll see you in a few minutes. Jump in the car and go. Uh, you could drive across the state or across the country if you wanted to without any major planning beforehand. And this is what American life has been for the past 100 years. Well, that's going to change with the electric car. And I think when people realize that, they're going to lose some of their love for the electric car. Now, one of the one of the things that uh, my friend with his new Tesla was uh, kind of uh, I, I, he was humble bragging about it on on social media, but he was like, "Here I am driving down the road at eighty miles an hour. Actually, I'm not the one driving. The car is driving itself, oh. and I'm working on my laptop." And I thought, "Okay, that's, that's appalling. That's pretty cool, but um, tell me the downside of of the autonomous yeah, yeah, it, car." It's appalling. It's appallingly reckless to do that. Uh, Tesla itself says, ironically that their autopilot feature is something that requires the driver to be prepared to intervene at any time. And the reason for that being that the autopilot is not infallible. Uh, we read almost every week about a crash involving one of these cars because the software glitched, something went wrong, and the person who is supposed to be and is responsible for controlling the vehicle, the driver, wasn't driving. They were piddling on their computer or taking a nap and assuming that the car was going to drive itself. And it did, straight into a tree or straight into somebody else. And that, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty selfish and reckless thing to do, in my opinion. Now, I have to admit, I'm tempted, though, by the idea that, man, I have a long way to drive. I'm very tired. It would be nice at some level to just tell the car, hey, take me there <laughs> and, and, you know, get 40 winks. Theoretically, yeah, but would you really want to be responsible for killing somebody else or yourself or leaving your family without you 
because the software glitched. I think until this system becomes infallible uh, and becomes perfect, uh, it is reckless and negligent to allow it or to even want to use it out on the public road. Because who's responsible in that case? You know, you and I, if we make a mistake, particularly if we make a mistake that's the result of recklessness behind the wheel, we have moral agency. We're responsible for that. If I'm playing with my phone while I'm driving a car and the car wanders into the opposite lane of traffic and there's an accident and somebody's killed, well, that's my fault. It's on me morally. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm, I should be held accountable for that. But who do we hold accountable when it's software? When it no. when it's servos and actuators and sensors in the bumper, no good good point. Is the is the technology improving though? I mean, I it, this has been around for for at least a few years now. Are are, yeah. they, are they advancing? You know the the abilities of this self driving technology. Yeah, they're advancing, but they can't replace a human brain. There is a misnomer out there that these are sort of thinking machines that they can they can evaluate a situation in the way that a human brain can receiving sensory input from eyes and so on. And that's not true. They operate like any machine within the parameters that were programmed uh, by the person who came up with the software. And if a situation develops for which the, the software and the programming uh, wasn't prepared, didn't anticipate that scenario, you have a problem. You know, the, the wonderful thing about our biological computers, our brains, is their flexibility and the way that they can roll with a situation and respond to it in a way that a machine can't. No, I, I think that's a, a fair point. And, and then again, you know, I have to remember that uh, you and I are, uh, we're, we're probably a little bit nostalgic about, uh, about the days when, when driving was, you know, that was part of the experience, case in point. How, how sure. easy is it to find a, a car with a manual transmission these days? Yeah, no question. But, you know, these are synergies. It, part of the reason, I think, for the appeal of this auto, automated driving tech is because driving has become less fun and less engaging than it used to be because it is so hyper-controlled by all of the safety stuff, as I like to style it, that they're putting into cars and all of the just militant, over-the-top enforcement of these penny-ante traffic edicts. Then you have all of the expense of the car itself, uh, of the insurance, and so on. And it gets to the point where you're like, well, why bother? You know, I really would rather just sit there and be taken to my destination and not have to worry about it. And that's sad. Yeah, it's that's the lazy part of me that's talking when I say I would just like my car to take me there so I can <laughs> get some rest or focus on whatever I'm behind on. Right. But right, that's the convenience. You know that 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 and that's a, you know that's a um, it's a it's a temptation to to, to think well okay this is going to be convenient but there's always a cost to convenience isn't there and I think it's important that we weigh that along with the the benefit of whatever the convenience is. And, and, you know, at, at the same time, it's very hard to, to uh, it's hard to give up the thrill of actually driving a car. And I'm, I'm specifically talking with a standard mm -hmm. transmission. There is something sure. magical that happens when you are the one who is, is driving the car. It's not just, you know, you steering it, but you're actually working through, you know, the gears. Well, particularly in terms of development, human development, I think, you know, you and I can relate to this and anybody who is our age can relate to this. When you're 15 years old, 14 years old, you're, you're licking your chops and salivating practically at the prospect of having your own set of wheels, right? Oh, yeah. It's empowering. You know, it, it's, you have some mastery now. You, you get to decide. You, you're you're going to go see your friends when you want to go, not have to wait there for somebody else to give you a ride. And as we grow and get older, we, we sort of take that for granted, and we get used to just being able to jump in the car and go wherever we want to go and stop wherever we want to stop 
and all of those things. But I think it's very, very important that we try to remember what it was like when we were teenagers and the joy, the liberating joy of being able to control your mobility and not lose that. Yeah, I'm just, I'm kind of reminiscing right now about gas at 85 cents a gallon. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Eric, we're up against the clock here, but thank you again for being my guest. Tell my, tell my listeners, where can they find your website? Sure, it's epautos.com, and I hope people will stop by and check out what's there. And if they have any questions about cars or motorcycles or anything at all, feel free to ask, and I will do my best to answer. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Welcome back to the show. Once again, thanks for being part of our growing audience. And if you find value in the content on this uh, program... I would ask you, please consider sharing it with others. Subscribe, maybe consider becoming a, you know, a, a patron and uh, becoming a monthly supporter. You can find details in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com right down there at the bottom of the page. A couple of simple links that will make it very easy for you. You remember the good old days when companies existed to meet the needs of their customers rather than just to signal social, social virtue and tell us where they stand on important issues? Yeah, I do too. I think life was simpler then and in many ways better. And so it was refreshing to see a story of a software company whose corporate speech policy is kind of a welcome break from all the social justice force feeding that we're used to getting. I mean, I'm starting to have some very serious sympathies for people who work within corporate America. You know, the the uh, the woke imperative, it has reached into so many aspects of our lives there's almost no escape. And I, yeah, I, it's not that I want to go out there and cause any contention. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be a disagreeable person just on principle, but I also don't want to be manipulated. I don't want to be pushed around by, you know, whatever the latest fad, the latest imperative is. So this is an article from American Thinker. Andrea Widberg is the uh, author. And she writes about how Basecamp is remote work software that provides a single online environment in which workers on a single project can consolidate everything they do on that project. So no matter where you are, there's a virtual meeting space in cyberspace. Now, that's pretty cool. What's really cool, though, about Basecamp isn't, is, is rather its CEO's new rule, which is simply people may not discuss politics at work. Yeah. With that single announcement, a third of the workforce quit. Other American corporations should follow suit. After a contentious all-hands meeting, the Basecamp CEO and one of its founders, Jason Freed, proposed a, posted rather a lengthy statement online detailing the new policies that he and David Hansen, a Basecamp, Basecamp founder and partner, had reached. Now, note, the article says, as a private corporation, Basecamp can impose speech policies on its employees. Here are the core parts, and she says in her article, other than the, the emphasis there, except for the first sentence, the bolded emphasis is hers. So first and foremost, their speech policy is 
No more societal and political discussions on our company Basecamp account. It says today's social and political waters are especially choppy. Sensitivities are at 11. Nice spinal tap reference there. And every discussion remotely related to politics, advocacy, or society at large quickly spins away from pleasant. You shouldn't have to wonder if you're stay, if staying out of it means you're complicit or wading into it means you're a target. These are difficult enough waters to navigate in life, but significantly more so at work. And so the memo says it's become too much. It's a major distraction. It saps our energy and redirects our dialogue toward dark places. It's not healthy. It hasn't served us well. And we're done with it on our company Basecamp account where this work happens. People can take the conversations with willing coworkers to Signal or WhatsApp or even a personal Basecamp account, but it can't happen where the work happens anymore. Now, there's a blog post that's linked here, and, and uh, the author says, look, I would urge you to read David's blog post because it's an excellent statement about how free speech should work in America. I'm going to let you chase that one down yourself just because uh, that's, you know, that's something you may want to do on your own time. But in addition to banning political talk in the workplace or over the workplace communication system, Basecamp is turning away from the Silicon Valley trend of turning every workplace into an amusement park for overgrown children. So here's the second thing. No more paternalistic benefits. For years, we've offered a fitness benefit, a wellness allowance, a farmer's market share, and continuing education allowances. They felt good at the time, but we've had a change of heart. It's none of our business what you do outside of work. And it's not Basecamp's place to encourage certain behaviors, regardless of good intention. By providing funds for certain things, we're getting too deep into nudging people's personal individual choices. So we've ended these benefits, and as compensation, paid every employee the full cash value of the benefits for this year. In addition, we recently introduced a 10% profit-sharing plan to provide direct compensation that people can spend on whatever they'd like privately without company involvement or judgment. Lastly, in the sixth numbered item, Freed reminds employees that Basecamp's purpose is to make management, I'm sorry, project management, team communication, and email software. We are not a social impact company. Our impact is contained to what we do and how we do it. As far as Basecamp leadership is concerned, we don't have to solve deep social problems or chime in publicly whenever the world requests our opinion on the major issues of the day or get behind one movement or another with time or treasure. Now, there are three other changes, but they're work-related, so they're not really relevant to this. But bravo and hurrah, this is the American ethos. Employees are paid to get work done, not to stand on soapboxes, and employers exist to give them a safe environment and a decent salary for their work, not try to force their lifestyle choices. Now, of course, the pushback from leftists was instantaneous. About a third of Basecamp's employees have said they're resigning after the company, which makes productivity software, announced new policies banning workplace conversations about politics. Or, as Rachel Bovard explained, to be clear, all these people left Basecamp because the company decided it wanted to focus on building software instead of hosting one giant struggle session. Oh, that is, that's actually really, really good. Scott Adams put the proper spin on the news about those employees' departures. He said, In one of the greatest management moves of all time, Basecamp CEO persuaded all of his most grindingly annoying employees to resign at once. 
Now, if every American corporation were to copy Basecamp's policy, much of what is divisive in America would vanish instantly. We could drink or not drink Coke based on the flavor of its drink, not the flavor of its politics. And the same would be true from, for any other products. <clears throat> we anxiously await word that other CEOs make the same decision. Pretty good stuff. Article from Andrea Widberg. This is linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I know. It's, it's, you know, people, well, why would you want to turn your backs on something so important? And I, I guess the, the key is you can still pursue those things, but you're going to do it on your own soapbox rather than the company's soapbox. I don't know. It seems like an idea whose time has come. I would love to see more people do it. Shifting gears. The solutions to a lot of the problems facing our culture and society today start much closer to home than most of us realize. One of the things, one of the most activist things that a person can do is raise kids who understand and value their freedom. Got an excellent article here from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. It's time to decolonize government schools. Now, this sets up where she's coming from. She says, after nearly 100 days in office, President Biden made his first speech to Congress last week, introducing a new program entitled The American Families Plan. For the unsuspecting, Biden's plan may seem kind and caring. Education, affordable child care, paid medical leave and financial benefits all appear to help young couples in their quest to raise the next generation. But for the discerning, Annie writes, Biden's plan raises a red flag that families are about to be colonized by the government. Now, she explains here, colonization is a term actively frowned upon in our postmodern world. Scholar Anthony Esselin explains in the April-May edition of Chronicles magazine, because it's a term used as a catch-all by the left to criticize the spread of Western civilization throughout the centuries and its domination of native cultures. In their view, every arena of life must be decolonized so as not to offend or give the appearance of racism. But she says, in reality, these same self-proclaimed decolonizers are self-righteous hypocrites, guilty of the very thing they claim to banish. And this is especially true when it comes to education. Esselin writes, drawing comparisons between uh, today's government education programs and the boarding schools of old, which took Native American children from their parents and taught them to live as civilized whites, the colonial power separates the children from their parents to make them reject their traditional way of li- ways of life and to have them think as the occupiers do, writes Esalen. Now, this forced indoctrination that happened hundreds of years ago is soundly condemned by today's woke crowd. But they avoid looking in the mirror when a similar thing is happening today. I've got to hit pause for just a moment because we've got to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll continue to explore why it's time to decolonize government schools. I can tell you this, you know, there, I, I see the problem as clearly as, as, as you see it too. And it seems pretty, pretty easy to make the case that, yeah, there are people who believe, look, as long as your kid is a captive audience in the school, we are going to do everything we can to, to I'm just going to use the word indoctrinate, to indoctrinate them with the proper attitudes which coincidentally is going to mean rejection of most of the things that traditionally you and I would say are good things. That's a battle I think I'm willing to fight. I want my kids to value freedom. That makes me an activist, so be it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. This is one of the places that I like to visit every single day because there's always there's always a fresh uh, crop of, of articles on a number of different topics, and, and the writers for Intellectual Takeout just have a really solid take. Annie uh, is the editor of Intellectual Takeout. This is her piece on how it's time to decolonize government schools. Now, she has a quote here from scholar Anthony Esselin in the April-May edition of Chronicles magazine. And, and, he, and she talks about, he actually, he writes about how our teachers are proud to separate children from parents intellectually, spiritually, and politically. But the parent of a minor child should be to the teacher as an employer to a tutor, delegating to him some measure of authority on condition that he do some designated work with a clear and mutually agreeable aim. Imagine a tutor posting a guard at the door of his study, lest the father enter and hear what the child is reading. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, unfortunately, that last point is exactly what seems to be happening in today's schools. As one high school teacher recently noted, students can change their clothes and name at school to reflect a different gender than their own, yet teachers are instructed to stay mum about such gender changes when speaking with the student's parents. Eslin continues his assessment of today's colonizers by saying, the school is an anonymous hulk, too big for direct personal confrontation. Its sole consultative board will be stocked with teachers and their relatives and friends. Responsibility is shielded by layers of administration. Textbooks are chosen by committee. And the choices mostly reveal contempt for the traditional. And you will be cowed into playing along or not making trouble because the occupiers can make or break your child's chances for entering one of the more lucrative centers of the higher swindle. Wow. <laughs> Now, the good news is, in, in essence, uh, she says, uh, schools are gatekeepers, and your if your child's in their clutches, you as the parent can expect to be sidelined in the future. Biden's American Families Plan embraces the view that parents are inept and incapable of raising their children. Therefore, government must extend education, taking children out of the home and away from those who may influence them toward traditional beliefs. Yep, that is colonization at its finest. But here's the good news. We don't have to go along with this colonization. In fact, recognizing that colonization is the is that colonization is the goal is the first step toward combating it. So, Annie says reverse course. If the government doesn't like traditional families and values, you'll need to teach your children to appreciate those very things. If the government thinks your little children should be away from home, spending time in preschool or daycare, then homeschool them instead. Set them on the path to success by reading to them, answering their questions, and spending time together as a family. If the government wants to funnel all kids through the expensive, debt-fueled undergraduate system, find a way to work around it. Encourage your children, if they're academically minded, to take college-level and advanced placement courses in high school to get a head start, or to pursue an apprenticeship and learn a trade instead. Both options will cut down on the time they spend subjected to government indoctrination. But she says, most of all, teach your children truth. As an old Hebrew text states, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Annie Holmquist says, Society wants us to believe such rest is found in greater government care. It's not. Buck the trend. She says, don't let the government colonize your child's education. Good stuff, huh? 
So how do you go about that? How do you, how do you uh, share something that you don't have? I guess my point here is if you want to be propaganda-proof and teach that to your kids, you've got to become propaganda-proof yourself. And here is another supremely helpful essay from Paul Rosenberg on how to recognize and counter common fallacies that are used to keep us from speaking or seeking the truth. Now, he's been doing this ongoing essay series on his freemansperspective.com website. I have been providing links to these over the last few weeks, uh, actually the last several months, in the show notes. And I'll have links to this essay as well. But he has a, a number of additional fallacies that he hasn't covered. Fallacies tend to come and go over time, so here are just a few in the time that we have left. For instance, there's the appeal to probability, a statement that takes something for granted because it would probably or might be true. For example, 60% of all computer problems or such all such computer problems are viruses. That's what this has to be. But it doesn't have to be that, of course. Then there's the argument from fallacy. The assumption that because an argument for some conclusion is fallacious, then the conclusion must be false. Now, Paul Rosenberg says this is bad thinking, of course, because a bad argument can sometimes produce a correct conclusion by accident. As the old saying goes, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. Then there's the continuum fallacy, rejecting a claim because it is imprecise. Now, a claim, of course, is not wrong because it's stated badly. Something is wrong because it fails to match reality. Someone failing to state a claim perfectly isn't a valid reason to dismiss it. More, than, more likely, the person dismissing the claim is trying to get an easy win and is intimidating the person making the claim, hoping to chase them away. An honest man or woman will say something like, I don't think you're making your case very well, Bob. Let me try to restate it for you. Then you tell me if I'm missing something. After that, a precise analysis can be made and the truth of the matter will hopefully be discovered. He says, many true statements have been badly made, but it didn't make them less true. It just made them hard to communicate. Here's one called the suppressed correlative. This is an argument that ignores or redefines the initial statement to make an alternative impossible. For example, you're putting on weight, Bob. No, I'm not. I'm skinnier than you. Now, the argument's ridiculous, of course, but it turns a statement into a fight, usually getting away from the original statement altogether. Then there's the ecological fallacy, making inferences about individuals based solely on aggregate statistics for a group to which he or she may belong. For example, the man's a snob. He's French, and 78% of Frenchmen are snobs. Now, even if it were true that most French were snobs, the man in question is an individual, and judging him based upon people who look like him or speak like him, or speak his language rather is silly. In a pinch, we must choose immediately, and no precise information is available. So we may have to guess based upon statistics. But those are just unfortunate necessities. And in them, we must still remember that we're making a wild guess and could be wrong. Next, he lists etymological fallacies, believing that the original or historical meaning of a word or phrase is the same or similar to its present-day usage. Oh, this could be fun. How someone used the word in 1770 doesn't mean the person using it now means it the same way, or even that he should. <clears throat> Rosenberg says you can't interpret modern usage with historical usage. I mean, the meaning of words changes from time to time. Their use even changes from person to person. Words are tools we use to transfer ideas, but they're only tools. They're not to be treated as if they have a rigid, concrete existence of their own. Next, the fallacy of composition, assuming something true of a part 
means something true of a part of means that it's a true of that it's true of the whole so someone using this argument might for example tell you why one division of a school or company is magnificent and imply that the other parts of the school or company are great but that's a false conclusion there's no guarantee the other parts are as good as the first likewise one bad part doesn't make the other parts bad maybe they are maybe they aren't then there's the fallacy of false attribution. That's appealing to an irrelevant, unqualified, unidentified, biased, or fabricated source in support of an argument. Now, this sadly goes on all the time, especially at formerly respected information sources like news networks. In our time especially, sources must be checked if we're to base opinions and especially responses upon them. Half a century ago, vetting information was a bit easier. News outlets that used bad sources would lose their audience. Nowadays, they care very little. With propaganda everywhere, sourcing barely matters, and without anonymous sources, a great deal of the news wouldn't exist. How about the fallacy of quoting out of context? It's easy to take one line from an interview, put it together with another line or two, and make it say just about anything you want. What's said before or after gives meaning to any quote, and what a person intended to say is the things that matters. All of us have tripped over our words at various times. All of us have said things poorly. Quoting out of context, context rather, unless it be an honest accident, is barbarism wrapped in intellectual clothing. One final one. <clears throat> we see this a lot. Moving the goalposts. An argument in which evidence is presented in response to a specific claim, and the, evid the evidence is dismissed, and an additional on other evidence is demanded. For example, hey, look, I've met the criteria that this works. No, you have to show more proof. Now, this fallacy became popular in certain scientific circles with the phrase, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That, however, is not only a clear case of moving the goalposts, it's also massively unscientific. Who, after all, gets to decide what's to be accepted with normal evidence and what requires extraordinary evidence? Science was formed precisely to eliminate such things. The motto of the first modern scientific group that became the Royal Society was Nolius in Verba. Take nobody's word for it. I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check them out for yourself. And thanks again for being part of our audience. This is The Brian Hyde Show.